119, verse 145. We got no Jim and Linda today, so Jim won't be reading. So let's see here. Psalm, Psalm, Psalm. Hang on once. Oh, I'm, I'm in Isaiah still. Hello, Charlie. There we go. Sorry about this. I should have had this marked, but I just wasn't thinking about Jim not being here. So, okay, Psalm 119, verse 145. This is the word kuf. I cry out with my whole heart. Hear me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I cry out to you, save me, and I will keep your testimonies. I rise before the dawning of the morning and cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness, O Lord. Revive me according to your justice. They draw near who follow after wickedness. They are far from your law. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. Sorry. Yes. Mine on the 48 says, my eyes anticipate the night watches. Yours, you said. Uh, and well, now i got to go back and find it again. Okay. It's going to take about eight minutes for me to do it. Hang on a second here. Vault 148, my eyes are awake through the night watches that I may meditate on your word are awake and ours says stay open and his says anticipate anticipate well, that's yeah. The same as yeah well that's because you have the same bible as i do that's <laughs> that's why I, yeah. I said that he, he must like the time that he spends with the lord i read that here not long ago and, well what i'll do if you send me an email i'll i'll read an analysis on the the verse completely and i'll give you a uh commentary on it next week but you got to remind me because i ain't going to remember that all right here we go we got uh, some prayer requests we have um stewart and valerie have asked for prayer for their pastor they wrote me a letter from england uh his name is jack mormon he's a baptist of pastor of an independent baptist church in uh wimbledon southwest london and they attend the bible studies and they also watch the updates on sunday night but uh they, it is Bethel Baptist Church, and they are asking for prayer for him because he's in bad shape, but also for the health of the church. So if he doesn't uh, hang around or if he retires or anything like that, I'm, I'm sure they're concerned because, you know, in England, finding good pastors anymore is getting more and more difficult. So I, I certainly agree with praying for that. And then David has asked for prayer concerning his attending Regent College for a BA degree. His art school transcripts were destroyed, so he has a hurdle to overcome there. But I think he's also looking just for general prayer for this. He's looking to, uh, uh, you know, get into uh, understanding, uh, you know, theology a little bit and et cetera. So uh, we'll remember him in prayer. And then, of course, uh, Sergio is still, he had the flu very bad last week. And by Tuesday, he was so bad, he had to go to the hospital. And they gave him some antibiotics. And he's been getting better. But we want to keep him in prayer. And... Uh, I know that I'm forgetting some other people. Last week, Doug, the guy that does the artwork for the sermons uh, in Ireland, he uh, he was had a bad Saturday, but I don't know if that's continued on, and I haven't heard otherwise, so I'm hoping he's okay. And then uh, I did not check Graham's page in Scotland, but he uh, was also having a really tough time last week. But anyway, Lothar. Uh, Lothar in Germany with his cancer, absolutely. So we got some people that are kind of spread out around the world that are having some trouble lately. And uh, uh, then, of course, we have, um, I mentioned her a couple weeks ago, and she's just on my mind lately, is uh, Elise. She uh, is the girl that got beaten up by a guy and was in the hospital, you know, in pretty bad shape. And uh, her parents emailed about prayer for her. And uh, I'm 
trusting because I haven't gotten any uh, uh, negative update that she's doing better and things are okay, but I want to keep these people in prayer. And uh, let's read this, and then after we read this, we'll go to prayer. Um, yes. Just a quick update on little Henry. Oh, yes. Uh, he's home and doing well. Good. Praise the Lord. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. Little Henry is doing well. I'm glad to hear that. Okay, here we got April 10th. Yes, today's April 10th. His release never came. Chutsuni. Uh, it's January, but you probably... April? Oh, did I say April? Yes, you did. Oh, well, then I, I'm in the wrong month. Okay. Uh, we want to go to coming. January. I don't know why I picked out April. I must, I, that was, you know, I was over there trying to get ready and you were bothering me. That's what it is. <laughs> I have no idea. It's Friday, um, but okay. coming. January 10th. It was a prayer meeting that uh, ended in heaven. Daniel James Draper, an English Methodist, went as a missionary to South Australia in 1836. It was probably pretty rugged back then. There he witnessed the building of 30 new churches and under his leadership saw membership increase tenfold. Draper and his wife made their first visit back to England 29 years later. On January 5th, 1866, they left Plymouth, England to return to Australia aboard the London. As they sailed out at midnight, the sky and sea were calm. Two days later, the wind increased, but not enough to prevent Draper from holding a worship service in the ship's saloon. But within 24 hours, the wind greatly increased, and much of the ship's rigging was blown away. The winds became so violent that the wreckage from the masts could not be cleared, making the ship rock even more, furthering the damage to the ship. The winds continued until they became a full-blown hurricane. By 3 p.m. Wednesday, January 10th, 1866, the ship turned back toward Plymouth, sailing as quickly as it could in its damaged state in an attempt to reach safer, calmer waters. At 10.30 that night, a mountain of water fell on the main deck, taking out the engine room skylight, completely filling the engine room and extinguishing the engine fires. As the men worked furiously to repair the damage, nature showed no mercy. Finally, Captain Martin told his men to say their prayers, for the ship was doomed. The darkness that night was an eerie forerunner of the deeper darkness that would soon engulf them. At midnight, Draper began a prayer meeting in their saloon, in the saloon, all the passengers and crew not on duty gathered. In between the prayers, Draper exhorted the people to come to Christ for salvation. Many brought their Bibles and read them with earnestness. Survivors later reported that mothers were weeping that as they held their bewildered children and friends bid each other goodbye, but there was no hysteria. At dawn, Captain Martin calmly told the passengers and crew that all hope was lost. Draper broke the somber silence that followed this announcement by standing up to address the crowd once more. With tears flowing down his face, he said in a clear, strong voice, the captain tells us there is no hope that we must all perish. But I tell you, there is hope, hope for all. Although we must die and shall never see again see land, we may all make the port of heaven. The survivors reported that from the beginning of the prayer meeting at midnight until the boat, until the boat sank, at two the next afternoon, Draper was ceaseless in his prayers, admonitions, and invitations. Among his last heard words were, in a few moments, we must all appear before our great judge. Let us prepare to meet him. A survivor said that as he left the ship, he heard people singing Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let, my hide, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of the double cure, save 
from wrath and make me pure. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Daniel Draper's sole concern as the ship went down was making sure that everyone knew the way of salvation. What do you think you would do if you were on a sinking ship? 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19 says, God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. This is the wonderful message he has given to us to tell others. Wow. Gee, I'd only hope I could be that strong. What happened? Uh, the ship sank and most of them died. They got obviously they had some they, well they had some witnesses that obviously got rescued but it doesn't say how or you know wow huh wow holy mackerel okay we oh let's go to Lord in prayer Heavenly Father thank you for that encouragement we got about that story of that gentleman Mr Draper and uh, I would certainly pray that you would give us the ability and the uh, stamina to with with uh, stand such situations on our own and in your strength. Uh, certainly that was a testing time for him and he passed the test with a A plus and I would pray that we would all be equally uh, equally strong in such a moment as that and Lord uh, you heard the names of the people that were lifted up in praise and in prayers for help and for uh, healing and for uh, restoration in their lives and so Lord we bring these up to you and also I'd like to pray for Luis, who is in, I can't pronounce it, you know where he is down in Mexico, Lord, and he's had a bypass surgery and he's had some complications and the family's reached out for prayer for him and I'd like to add him to that list as well. And uh, we certainly pray for these people and ask that you attend to them according to your wisdom and if it's your will to heal them, that that would happen and that people would understand that it was you that did it so that you would get the glory. And if it's your will for them not to be healed, that good would come out of it and that you would be glorified through that with people understanding their own mortality and their own need to come to you for your grace in Christ before that last day comes. And Lord, we thank you for this class. We thank you for your wonderful word. And we ask that you uh, guide us and may what I teach today be proper. And if it's not, close the ears of the people to anything that is incorrect so that they're not... Uh, given bad doctrine. And Lord, we thank you for this. We love you and we praise you for hearing our prayers because of Christ Jesus. And it's in his, his name we pray. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Corinthians 2 and we're in verse 11 today. And as I said, we don't have a gem around. I'm just going to go ahead and read. Um, what I'll do is I'll take us back to verse 8. And uh, it kind of looks, no, I'll go back even a little further. Um, I don't want to start at 10. That's kind of, let's see here. Where do we want to start at? Well, it's six. Yes. Thank you. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, and if you remember, these verses here are not talking about heaven. They're not talking about something future. They're talking about the gospel. The eye has not seen, nor ear heard, 
nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's speaking of the gospel. Nobody could have imagined it. Eyes couldn't have, hadn't seen it, and ears hadn't heard it, and the people of the world could not have imagined what God had done. Verse 10, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Then we come to verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. So we'll give you the analysis on that. Now we got somebody that is attending here for the first time, although he used to uh, be out at the beach. And uh, so just so you know, I, all of my notes I typed in advance and that way I don't fumble through my words, but uh, uh, we have uh, my notes and then I do add in things as they come to mind or if uh, Burke or somebody throws in a, a thought, but uh, most of it's just what I have come up with when I've had time to contemplate it rather than just talking off the top of my head. Okay, so 2.11, my thoughts are Paul is tying what he has just said in with this thought. He has been writing about the wisdom of God, which has been hidden and unknown to man until it was revealed by the Spirit of God. If the Spirit of God had not revealed these things, meaning the things that we've been reading about, which are now found in the proclamation of the prophets and the apostles, and which speak of the work of Christ, as is recorded in Scripture, we never would have been able to discern them. The plan of salvation is holy. Uh, you've got general revelation. General revelation is what you can deduce from creation. There's a chair, and I can figure things out about the chair just by looking at it. And then if I start taking it apart or feeling it, I can deduce more things. And if I you know, cut off one leg and it doesn't stand right, then I can deduce that it needs to have four legs. All kinds of stuff. Well, that's the way creation is. We can deduce all kinds of things about the universe in which we live, we can deduce all kinds of things about God because of the creation. We see people falling in love, and we know that nothing can exist that doesn't first exist in God. And so we know that God is loving because he has created people to be loving to one another. And we can see the wisdom of a spider making a web, and we can say that God is very wise because the creation cannot possess something that God does not possess, okay? And there's nothing that is uh, in creation that is not in some way revealing what God is like, okay? So that's general revelation, but special revelation is something that comes apart from creation. You cannot learn special revelation except God revealing it to you. And he does that through prophets. He does it through apostles. He does it through his word. He does it through sending his son. And then the explanation of that has to be revealed to us by the people that saw him and say, this is what happened when he came. That is special revelation, all right? So um, the prophets and the apostles in which speak of the work of Christ, all as was recorded in scripture, we would not have been able to discern them otherwise. They belonged alone to God in his eternal mind. To show us something more easily understandable, he uses the thoughts of the individual man as a comparison. Talks about the spirit of man can tell the things about the man. Well, that's what he's doing. Nobody can get truly, can truly get into another man's thoughts. All we can do is make deductions about what someone is thinking, but we can never know for sure the details and some of his mind. I can look at Burke when he, a couple weeks ago when he was counting the number of apostles there and uh, not paying to whatever thing I was saying, paying attention, and I could make deductions about what he is doing. Well, actually I couldn't. I had no idea until I asked him, 
But uh, I still think about that because on Sunday, guess what I was doing? I was sitting right there and I was looking at that. And I was saying, now I know why he was sitting there looking. It's really beautiful. And you're trying to figure out the number. So anyway, but we can, we can kind of look at somebody and say, I think this guy's thinking about that or this is what's on his mind. But we can't know the sum of his, his thoughts. It's impossible. And the same is true with God. He has created and we can make deductions about him from his creation. But we can never fully attain to the thoughts of God. And we surely cannot speak for him about what his thoughts are. And that's one of the things that really upsets me when I see that in Christianity is where people proclaim the Lord says. The Lord says when we know that that is not something of the Lord. The Bible is written. I don't believe in extra biblical revelation. I do believe the Lord can put things on our hearts and prompt us to do things, but I don't believe in a direct word from the Lord. I, it, it would be unnecessary and it would be not faith in we live by faith and not by sight. Now, just so you all know, I'm going to stop right there because it came to mind and you were supposed to remind me of this and you did because I looked at you and it reminded me. So thank you, Burke. Um, <laughs> if somebody is too hot, let me know. I'll turn on the air. If somebody's too cold, I can turn on the heater. I didn't turn anything on because it was 70 when I got here and it was 70 when he got here. And so if somebody feels uncomfortable, let me know. Um, there we go. The uh, So um, where was I? Uh, we cannot speak for him about what his thoughts are. Another thing that people will do and this goes to the person, Louise, that I prayed for at the beginning of the uh, uh, service here, is he's down in Puerto Barroto something, Mexico. If you can speak Spanish, you know what I'm talking about. It's on the coast about two-thirds of the way down Mexico, and that's where he lives. And he had a heart attack, and a, a girl that has been a friend of mine for many years emailed me, and she asked for prayers for her father. And I was not on Facebook for a couple of days, so I didn't get some more prayers where he had kind of a, a, a relapse. And so she called some international prayer thing. And this lady was on the phone claiming healing in Jesus' name and saying, they, we claim this healing. And that is presumptuous. And I told her, don't, don't listen to that type of thing. Because what that does is when somebody claims healing in Jesus' name and the person isn't healed, what do you think it does to the people that have been stuck with, hello, how are you? So good to see you. I didn't see you over there. Um, it's um, uh, uh, Anyway, if you go claiming things, and we used to have somebody that did that out at the projects. He would claim healing over people and say, I claim this healing in Jesus' name. And the next week we'd go and they wouldn't be cured. And now they're literally disaffected about what has transpired. Well, I thought he was going to be cured. So it's diminishing to the name of Christ and the power that Christ has. We pray for healing, but we don't claim anything. Like I said, that's presumptuous. And it's presumptuous and it's actually sinful so um only the spirit in a man knows the things of that man and in like manner only the spirit of god can know the things of god all right paul is going to continue with this thought in the verses ahead but it is important to remember that what he has been speaking about and what he will continue to speak about is the message of the gospel He's not indicating that we have something available to us that is unavailable to others. That is not what Paul is doing. He is not saying that because we have the Spirit, we are able to obtain a level of spiritual knowledge that others can't. And we talked about that last week. Sex and cults will do that. They say that this is something that only certain people can deduce, and it has to be spiritually attained, and you obviously don't have the Spirit. And I've even seen it in colleges, and I may have said it in this class, is that... Um, uh, when I was applying for, you know, to go to seminary somewhere, I called up several colleges in Florida and their doctrine said, or I called them up and I also went online and checked out their doctrine. They said that you must speak in tongues in order to prove that you have the spirit. 
And if you don't do that, then you're not a spirit-filled Christian and you're not in coming to this college. And that's, one, unbiblical, and two, that's putting people on a different spiritual level. It's claiming something that other people somehow don't have. There is no second filling of the Spirit. There is filling of the Spirit. There is one filling of the Spirit. They've taken a verse in John out of context, and then they've taken Acts chapter 2, which is, one, it's descriptive. It's not prescribing anything. And two, it's not even speaking to the Gentile-led church. It's speaking to Israel, who had just crucified their Lord. So, um, bad theology, and it's showing that I have something that other people do not have. We all have access to the same Spirit. It is up to us to do the hard work, all right? And Bible study is hard work. That's why we come and we go home and we think, gee, I just don't understand what he talked about or, you know, whatever. Well, that's why we have notes. And if you want them, I can email them to you because I want people to be trained in these things, but it is up to the individual. It's not up to you saying, okay, Spirit, come and fill me. As we've talked about in the Bible, when Paul writes, be filled with the Spirit, it is in the passive in the Greek. And tenses have meaning in Greek, just as they have in the English. We do not fill ourselves with the Spirit. We allow ourselves to be filled with the Spirit. And the only way that can happen is by pursuing the things of God in the way that the Bible instructs us, such as going to Bible study, worshiping the Lord, praying with other Christians, reading your Bible. Those are the things that bring a filling of the Spirit, not going to church and listening to music. That is not going to fill you with the Spirit. It'll make you feel good, but feeling good is not necessarily being filled with the Spirit, okay? So, um, we'll go on. Um, spiritual level of knowledge others cannot, nor is he saying that we can now speak for God, which is something I've been talking about in prophetic utterances. He is clearly explaining how the message of the gospel was unknown until it was known, and that it is God's incomparable way of bringing salvation to man. Later, when speaking of those who are not in Christ, he will explain why they cannot perceive the gospel. It is not because they don't have it available to them, but because they don't have faith to receive it. When faith is exercised, they will receive the Spirit, and the gospel will suddenly make sense. People talked to me about the gospel years ago. I, as a matter of fact, I don't even remember them having come to my house. They were from the uh, school and the church that my children, I sent them to a Christian school, and these people went around evangelizing all the parents, and they came to my house. And years later, I was there, and they said, yeah, we came and talked to you, and apparently it didn't have any effect on you because we left, and you never came to church. And I said, I don't even remember you people coming to my house. He said, there were four of us. We all came. That shows you how dark the spiritual darkness over a person that doesn't want to hear the gospel is. Absolutely dark. I don't even remember that day. And so sometime along the way, I met the Lord, and I started attending there just because that's where the children went to school. And... Uh, there you go. Well, whatever. Okay, life application. Faith in the gospel is not a step into darkness. Has anybody ever told you that uh, faith is just taking a step, step into the unknown? You need to take that step. That is not what faith is. It is stepping into God's revealed light. Somebody comes to you and they say, Jesus Christ died for your sins. Jesus Christ went into the grave to take your sins away. Jesus Christ rose victorious over the power of death in order to give you eternal life. And you say, I believe that. That is faith. You have been given the light and now you are accepting it. Faith is not just arbitrarily stepping off. And a good example of this is, um, uh, you could take it one of two ways, but I'll take it in the positive way with this one. If anybody saw the uh, search for the Holy Grail 
with, um, you know, um, Indiana Jones and the search for the Holy Grail. Anybody remember that? And there were three tests that he had to go to. The first one was um, the penitent man uh, will come before God or something. And, and so he's going through this first test and there's all these people all over the place, these bodies, and they're all missing heads. And he's got to get through this, this shadowy place without losing his head, but he doesn't know how. And he's saying this to himself. He's saying, the penitent man, the penitent man. And finally, he realizes at the very last second, a penitent man is kneeling. humble. He's, yeah, he's kneeling. He's, so he gets down really quickly. This thing goes over his head and he makes it through the first test. Okay. And then he comes to the second test. The second test is in the uh, steps of God, you will get to the third test. And so he, he says, he, he walks into this room and there's all of this stuff on the floor, just letters everywhere. It's just bizarre letters and, and this and that. And, and he's saying, well, what does that mean? How am I going to get through this? And he says, in the name of God. And so he says, the name of God. And so he starts to jump onto the J and the J breaks and he almost falls through. And he says, oh my gosh, in the Latin, it begins with an I. And so he steps more carefully on the I, and then he steps on the E and the S, O U, or maybe it was uh, Jehovah. And I think it was Jesus, I-E-S-O-U-S. Anyway, so he's stepping on the right, the stones, and he gets through that. And now he's got one more test. And the final test is a leap from the lion's head, and you will get to the grail. Okay? And he's there, and there's this impossible, it, it's like 80 feet across, there's this chasm. And there's no way that a person could jump it. Not, not even with a rocket pack, he couldn't get across this thing. And it says that a leap from the lion's head will, you know, basically prove the, the man. Okay? So I will look, you could look at it in a negative way. He is stepping blindly into this chasm. Okay? We could say that. That's, that's darkness and that's blind faith. But that's not what it was because he already had somebody that gave the clue. That means that it is possible. And that's what the Bible is. The Bible is something that tells us this is the way to salvation. He has got the revealed light. All he has to do is trust it by faith. And so what does he do? He steps up and he puts his foot out and he lands on solid stone, even though there's nothing there. And then the camera swings to the side and there's actually a bridge going across, but it's the same color as the wall on the other side. And so you couldn't see it. But once he stood on it, he looks over and he sees it's a bridge. So he had God's, we'll call it God's revealed light. Somebody told him, this is what you have to do. Well, that's what the Bible is. He had a reliable he, word. He had a reliable word, especially with the first two. And so all he had to do was exercise the faith. And that is what we're doing with the Bible. We have God's word. It is not darkness that we have to say, I hope that God is going to get me to the next shore. He's already proven all the way through scripture. He's proven through scripture that he is reliable. And we're going to talk about that in detail on Sunday. The reliability of God's word. As I said, this sermon is not going to end. It's just a part one of a three-part because it's a whole chapter. It's like 50 uh, sermons uh, verses long. So we've got to do three sermons at least on it. But the reliability of God's word is what is being tested when these people go up into Canaan. Just remember that and the, the sermon will make all kinds of sense to you on Sunday. Okay, but we are not walking into darkness. We are not stepping into darkness. We're stepping into what God has already re revealed, his light, which tells us of the person of Jesus Christ. Okay, so let me see if I can find where I was there. Um, uh, yeah, faith is not a, in the gospel is not a step into darkness. It is stepping into God's revealed light. This light 
is found in the Bible, which contains the words of the prophets and apostles. And as I said, the prophets have prophesied now for thousands of years, and they have been spot on target again and again and again and again. They said that Israel would be regathered as a nation, and it happened in our lifetimes, and people still don't want to respond to what the Bible says. It says that Jerusalem would again come under the control of Israel. Guess what? It has happened. It also says that the world is going to go through a time of judgment, okay? When the world goes into a time of judgment, how many people are going to say, well, God predicted this? And so the problem with that is that there are so many movies out there and there are so many religions that talk about an end of days of the world that they're just going to think that it's just, you know, it's just circumstance. But the fact is that God has told us what's going to happen. He's told us the outline of it. He's told us all of the bigger details and the little details will be filled in with thousands and millions of people's lives being lost because of a failure to accept Christ. And one other thing that the Bible has done is it has said that you don't have to believe it, but it does say it, okay, is that there's going to be a rapture, that the people of God are going to be taken out of the world before the time of tribulation comes. I believe that personally. And Paul wrote it. There's no reason to doubt what it says. He's given us all of this other abundant evidence in scripture that he is fulfilling his word. Why would this one thing not be true? I don't see any reason to doubt it at all. I have complete faith that one of these days we are going to be gone. Um, the things of God necessary for salvation have been revealed by the spirit of God to us. Let us continue to read and cherish this treasure of wisdom and love all of our days. Okay, 2.12. Now we have the spirit. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Okay, Paul just spoke of the spirit of God being the only one who can truly know the things of God. Now he builds upon this stating that we have received. In the original sense, he is surely writing about himself and the other apostles as they received instruction concerning the work of God in Christ, the very subject that he's been speaking about. In other words, the reception of the things of God was previously limited to the apostles who have then given us what they received. Okay, so it's a process. God doesn't just print off a book and say, okay, everybody, here you go. The apostles walked with Jesus. They saw him crucified. He came out of the grave. Thomas didn't believe. Thomas finally believed. After that, they had their 40 days of uh, theological instruction with Christ, and then he ascended into heaven. So they had the information. Paul was born out of time or out of the normal order of things, but he was also apostle. He received the instruction from the Lord. He also had his own training session down in, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Sinai. Uh, not Sinai. Sinai, yes, but um, um, Arabia. Arabia. Thank you. I'm trying to think. I'm, I know I'm not supposed to say Saudi, but I'm trying to think. What am I supposed to Arabia. Thank you. Anyway, and that's in Galatians 4, I believe. Three. Anyway, three or four. And um, uh, so he had his own training session. He got up to speed on what his job was, was to be in the Gentile-led church age. He did it very well. He gave us what he knew in the words of the Bible. And now we have that information. So that's the process, okay? Through them, meaning the apostles, this was revealed to those who accepted the message and believed. When faith is exercised in the true gospel, the believer is then sealed with the spirit who is from God, the Holy Spirit. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take you very quickly through that process. First 1 Corinthians 15, 
It says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. This is the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's saying that um, this is the gospel, verse 3. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. He explains a little more, Peter saw, and then 500, etc. But the gospel is what he just uh, said in 3 and 4. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. You're told that message. Now you have to act on that message. And he, we can take you to Romans chapter 10 to see how you act on it. In verse 9, it says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, because nobody would confess a dead Lord, right? The Lord Jesus. That goes back to what he just said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again. He must be the Lord because people don't just rise out of the grave arbitrarily. Only God could do that. Only God in Christ could do that, okay? So that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, meaning when he says Lord, the context of what he is saying is not just the word kurios, which can mean Lord, the, the Lord of a household, or it can mean God. Kurios can mean all kinds of things based on the context. What he is saying here in this is that the Lord is the Lord of the Old Testament. Jehovah, Jehovah, Yahweh, whatever name you want to give it. We're not sure of his name. Some people say one, some say another. Nobody knows for certain, but we'll just say Jehovah. It's the most common name that people understand. That is the context, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. And I have had many times in the past three or four, five months maybe, somebody's teaching this out there. And it's sad that people teach this, but they've been teaching that that's a work. You don't have to confess with your mouth. Well, listen, I didn't write what, this word here. I did not write this word. And I have to go through the same thing again and again and explain to people why it is not a work that we confess with our mouth. Okay. When we get married, is it a work to say, I do? Of course not. It's an honor. All right. We have all kinds of things that we confess with our mouth. And yet all of a sudden people say, that's a false gospel. You're telling people that they have to say that Jesus is Lord. What does it say here? Read it again. And remember, I didn't write this. This was written by somebody a couple of years before me. All right. That if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Only a fool would not confess the Lord when they believed in their heart that he's Lord. Most people would stand up and raise their hands and shout, praise God, right? Unless you're just an idiot. So I just, I don't know who is teaching this out there, but I've had so many people email me about this, that somebody is out there teaching it and it's getting around. It is not a work to confess the Lord Jesus. It is a privilege, it is an honor, and it is your responsibility. Anyway, from there, um, uh, we call it the 14-inch conversion. I've got the knowledge, and now I let it go from my head down to my heart. And I believe with the heart one believes unto righteousness. That's step two. You know the gospel, you've accepted it. And step three is immediate when you do step two. And I'll take you there right now after I get my place back in 1 Corinthians. I'm going to take you to Ephesians chapter 1. And in verse 13, this is immediate. This is the one filling of the Spirit, that, or I'm sorry, the one baptism of the Spirit you're ever going to get. 
verse 13, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, which is 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel of your salvation in whom also having believed, Romans 10, 9, and 10, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest seal that is anywhere possible, anywhere, heaven or earth, the Holy Spirit is the seal because God is the source of all things. You can't have a higher seal, the Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, who is the guarantee? <coughs> a couple points, and I say it time and again. If salvation is not eternal, then one, it was a terrible guarantee. Two, it's not the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible does not change. He doesn't think the way we do. His decrees are eternal decrees. If he says, I've sealed this person with the Spirit and then takes that back, then it's not the God of the Bible. So it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. He has purchased us. How did he do it? With the shed blood of Christ on Calvary. He has taken his son and he has made a purchase back from who? The devil. Remember what it says? I have authority over all these and I can give it to whoever I want. Jesus didn't dispute that. The devil had possession of the world and of the people in the world. God purchased us back from him. And guess what? If you're not purchased back, then that's where Revelation 19 through 21 go, comes in. Someday you're going to stand before a great white throne, and there's only one place you're going to go to. If you're not purchased by Christ, you're going to go to where he is, to the lake of fire. So, you know, and I don't like, you know me, I don't, I'm not one to talk about hell. I'm not one to preach on it. It's not my thing. I'd rather preach on the grace of Christ, but there is a reality that if you are not in Christ, you are not in Christ. Okay. So, once again, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of what? His glory, not ours. It's not up to us. It's up to him to the praise of his glory. If he fails in the purchase of his possession, in the shedding of the blood of his son, in the guarantee of which is the Holy Spirit, the sealing of the Holy Spirit, then he has failed and he's not to be glorified. But he is going to be glorified. He has said that he has sealed you. It is done. Now, what happens afterward when you walk away from Christ or when you shipwreck your faith or all of the other things that are in Scripture is going to be a very sad day when you stand before the Lord and you say, well, I just, you know, I blew it. I wasted everything that all the potential I had the moment that I was saved could have been dedicated to you. And instead, it's gone to something else. But that is not God's fault. That is our fault. Okay, so you have the gospel, you've got how to appropriate appropriate it, and then you've got the results of that. 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 10, and then you get to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And okay, yes? 2 Corinthians 1, 22, he says it's his pledge. But that's right, and that's the same word as in Ephesians 1. Read it. Go ahead and read it. Also sealed us and gave us the spirit in our heart as a pledge. pledge. Okay, that's the exact same word. It's only used three times in the New Testament. It's the word eravon. Guess what? That's a Greek word, but it's also used in the Hebrew Old Testament in Genesis chapter 30. Anybody? Eight, the story of Judah and Tamar, right? She is given something by Judah. A pledge. A pledge. And guess what the word is in Hebrew? Eravon. It's a loan word from Greek. God used one word in the Old and New Testaments to make absolutely sure that what was being pictured in Judah and Tamar is fulfilled in Christ Jesus and then the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Okay, go back and watch that sermon if you don't know what I'm talking about. It is marvelous what that is picturing. And I did it all in one sermon. I regret that hugely. 
I regret that hugely. I should have taken two or three sermons to do it, but it, you know, it just flowed well enough where people would get the point of it, but it is marvelous what is pictured in Judah and Tamar. We talk about how bad the things are in the Old Testament. Lot slept with his daughters when they have no idea that both of those daughters and Lot lead to Jesus Christ, right? And then we have the story about Judah sleeping with his daughter-in-law and how righteous she is and how unrighteous he is. And that's not why the story was put in there. It does acknowledge that, but that's not why the story was there. It was to show us a picture of what God was going to do in Christ. That's the marvel of what's a good, good catch on that. That's only one, one of three times that that word is used in the Old Testament and one of three times it's used in the New Testament. And there's a reason for each one of them. Okay, so Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Therefore, Paul's we, the we, is ultimately referring to all true believers. Even though it initially was Paul and the apostles, it transcends to all believers who have appropriated the gospel message of Christ ultimately, okay? What we receive is not, as Paul says, is not the spirit of the world. In this, he's probably thinking on two separate lines. The first is the Jew who was looking at scriptures from a worldly, kingly sense. Their idea of a Messiah was one who would deliver them from their enemies, excuse me, and set up a kingdom over the world in which they would be the head of the nations. They couldn't understand all are bound under sin. They couldn't understand that. And therefore, sin is the greatest enemy. Before the Messiah could reign as king, he had to suffer as the servant. All right. And that's discussed. Actually, I started typing the Romans 10 commentary already, which is coming in a couple days. I did Romans 10, 5 today, and that's actually discussed right there in Romans 10, 5. So the, I'm sorry, Hebrews. I said Romans. I'm typing Hebrews commentary, not Romans. Anyway, Hebrews 10, 5. The uh, second line Paul is speaking uh, the second line Paul is probably speaking of is the wisdom and philosophy of the Greek, which look for a rational, natural explanation for all things. So you've got the Hebrews who are looking at their scriptures in a worldly, kingly sense, and then you've got the Greek, which look for a rational, natural explanation for all things. And we see that in the world today. As I said, go on to YouTube and watch video after video about, you know, Einstein's theories and about you know, the uh, the uh, theory of everything. And you've got the, uh, the CERN over in uh, where Belgium or wherever it is, and they're trying to smash particles so that they can find the God particle to explain everything, okay? That's the wisdom of the world, the natural explanation for all things. Their knowledge excluded the thought of sin needing to be dealt with personally by God. The Greeks did, and today's, you know, uh, scientists are in the same position. They don't think that sin is an issue. They think that if we can solve these issues of particles and of, of, you know, wormholes and of string theory and all of these other issues, we can take care of the issue of sin separately. We can show that morals are on a completely different level than what the Bible would speak of. All right. Such knowledge could never understand the deep things of God, which necessitated his divine intervention to reconcile us to him. They couldn't even comprehend that. They couldn't imagine that because they're looking for a natural explanation of everything, all right? Along with the wisdom of the Greek was certainly the inclusion of all of the Gentile systems which always look to self and to works for reconciliation with God if they believe in God at all. In all, the spirit of the world is at enmity with God. And that is one thing that you are going to see. I don't care what religion you go study, doesn't matter what religion you study, it will always come back to self. Always. I am going to do something to merit God's favor. I don't care where you go in this world. I don't care what part of the world, what culture, 
it will always come back to, I am going to do something. If I believe in a God or if I believe in an afterlife of some type, it will always be self. Always. There is one exception to this in all of all of the religions of the world, and that one exception is biblical Christianity. I'm not talking about Catholicism, where they work their way to heaven through certain rituals and certain rites and certain confessions, okay? I'm not talking about the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, which have departed from the Bible. I'm talking about people that are in churches, and it, I'm not a denominationalist. There are good Presbyterians, there are good Methodists, you've got people that are interspersed in denominations all over the world that understand that it is not of works, that it is of the grace of God, by faith through grace. That is biblical Christianity, and that is what is being discussed right here, okay? But in his grace, God provides his spirits to those who believe that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. That's what Paul says, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God Again, as noted in previous verses, this is not speaking of divine inspiration of new things and prophetic utterances which people claim all the time in churches today. It is speaking about those things which, that were revealed through the apostles and given to us in Scripture. I was at, uh, I went to Israel with Zola Levitt, with my mom and Zola um, in 2003. And he came and visited north of here in Tampa. And so mom and I went up to see him and, you know, thank him for the trip and, to, you know, just hear him talk. And when we went, it was in a very charismatic church. And after he was done and, you know, Zola was going to take some comments before, but before he did, the pastor got up there and he said, the Lord just told me that somebody here is, is being called to clean the church on Sunday. And he was doing this. He was, he was, he, what he wanted done, he was saying the Lord was telling him. He had a direct line to God up there, and he's that kind of stuff goes absolutely nowhere. That is self, that is controlling over the, the congregation and the people, and it is not biblical in any way, shape, or form. And do you remember that? Maybe you don't. It was about, we went about 12 years ago. It was, you two volunteer? Oh, yeah, it was me. I said, oh, I'm being called. No. Anyway, but you know, that's the kind of thing that people will do. They will claim things in God's name to get other people to do things. What you need to do is say, this is what the Lord has said, and this is what we're to do. If it's not listed in here, we're free to do it as a negative. And if it is listed in here, then we should be doing it. But if you don't, it's not going to change your salvation, but it is going to ruin your life. Because if you're not being obedient to this, who created us and who knows what's best for us, then you are the one that's going to suffer. He knows what is best for us. And that's why he gave us these very simple commandments, very simple guidelines after the giving of his son. I've done all the work. This is what will keep you healthy. It will keep you on a right spiritual path. It will keep you from falling away and ruining your life, going back to the bottle, going back to drugs, going back to sexual addiction or whatever it is. This is going to keep you from doing that. And anything else that isn't in here, you have freedom to do without any conscience at all. All right. So this is what Christ has offered us. It is the word of God, which tells of Jesus. Though lacking the sensation of charismatic churches, it is the Bible and only the Bible by which we are given insights into what God has done, into what God is doing, and what God will do in the world. The apostles received the word directly from God. We receive the word directly from the Bible. They have given us the word of God, and we respond to it by reading it and applying it to our lives. I'm up to Acts, um, uh, where am I now? Acts probably 16. 
You know, you, I, you all know, I drive maybe five minutes a day. I don't drive very much. That NIV Life Bible, I put it in in October. I mean, I'm sorry, August. I think it was the 11th of August. I put a little note on there the day that I started it. And a couple minutes a day, just a couple minutes a day of driving, and I'm up to act something. But today it was fun because I planted all the plants out at the mall I take care of, all the flowers, okay? And while I did it, I left the doors of the car open. I had the Bible up way loud, and everybody going by. One lady was so angry, she was fuming. I could, she, she was just like this, like, I don't care. I'm going to listen to the Bible. I'm planting flowers out here. A lot of people walked by and gave me a smile and, you know, whatever. But uh, uh, I just thought, I'm going to listen to Acts. And that's kind of a, a, a book where people are listening to it and it can really convict you. You know, I mean, <laughs> the things that are being said in there. And anyway, so I, I did cheat. It wasn't just driving today. It was probably 50 or 60 minutes of, uh, of uh, planting flowers. But I mean, you just spend a few minutes a day in your car, you'll be done with the Bible twice in a year. And I've proved that because I drive less than anybody on this planet. And then if you read your Bible for 30 minutes a day, 154 days, you'll be done with your Bible if you read at the speed of an audio Bible. So you've got no excuse, no excuse at all. Anyway, we'll go on. Um, life application. Ever since the completion of the Bible, people have continued to proclaim prophecies and claim that they have dreams and visions concerning divine revelation from God. And yet in those 2000 years, think of this. People have been doing this for 2000 years, claiming prophetic revelation from God. In those 2000 years, none, not one of them, none has added anything to the value of the truth of the Bible. Can you imagine that? The Bible still stands. It still leads people's lives. And not one of those things that people have claimed. And I'm not saying that people haven't seen visions. I don't believe it, but maybe they have. Okay, that's up to them. But it hasn't added anything to Scripture. It has done nothing to edify anybody. Nobody. All right. And all it's actually done is confuse the church in a million different ways. Instead, they have been, there have been diversions away from biblical truth. Think of Ellen G. White. Anybody know who she is? Ellen G. White, she does. Anybody else? Seventh-day Seventh Adventist, right? Visions of God, claims of all of these divine revelations, and an entire sect of people, tens and hundreds of thousands of people around the world, follow this person instead of following Scripture, right? Her words are put on the same level as Scripture. Now, I want you to know that their website has scrubbed that. Their website up until a couple of years ago had all of Ellen G. White and we hold to her and now they've kind of scrubbed that, but they still teach it. It's just not on their main website because it's kind of a hindrance to getting people in there. And then once they're in there, they keep teaching it and all of the legalistic things they teach. But there are people like her all over the world. Charles Taz Russell, anybody? Uh, no, he's the um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And you could go down name after name of these people that have come up with all of these things and all they've done is tear the Bible apart. They haven't added to it at all in any productive way. They've only taken it and torn it apart and torn people away from the sound theology. Joseph Smith, most of you know that name, right? Mormons, okay? Instead, they have been diversions away from biblical truth. Do not get swept up in the vain imaginings of others, but hold fast to the word of God and what he has revealed. And after you are in this Bible class, as I say, week after week after week, it is incumbent on you to... Think on what I said and to say, I disagree with him because he didn't say something in accord with scripture or that was in accord with scripture, but I don't think it was in the proper context or whatever. Or you can say, I agree with his evaluation, but it is incumbent on you. I'm going to be held to the higher standard, James 3, 1, but you are still responsible for every word that you assimilate that I teach or that you read in a commentary. 
And you know, every Sunday when I give a sermon, I'm always citing people, John Lang or Albert Barnes, right? And these are the finest minds of all of Christian history. They have all the cumulative wealth of knowledge of people that spoke the original languages that were there with the church fathers, and they built upon those things. They get strong concordance coming out about that time, and they can start searching things out, and they are in the prime position of all of Christian history in the 17 and 1800s, where these people spent their lives studying scripture, right? And yet, there are times where I will read a commentary by John Lang, who I absolutely love, and I will read a commentary by Charles Ellicott, who I absolutely love, and they will say exactly the opposite thing. Exactly the opposite. And I think, how did that happen? These two great men of God who have given the most wonderful insights into the Word of God, and then Albert Barnes comes and he says, well, this is will illuminate this. And you say, that makes sense. Now I can agree with John Lang because of what he has said. And you really have to search. It's hard work. It's tough. But when you see two conflicting things being said about the same passage of scripture, they can't both be true because God does not author things in a confused way. There is one truth to what is being said. So it's important that you follow the same path that I follow on Monday when I do the sermons and each morning when I do these write-ups. It's important for you to evaluate what I have said or anybody that you listen to. Les Feldick, one of my favorite Bible teachers of all, he's got things I disagree with. And when I disagree with him, I say, I disagree with that because that is what I believe is necessary to do. Doesn't mean I hate the guy. I love him. He's one of the greatest Bible teachers around and he's a nice, humble guy. But there are things that he says that I don't agree with. Okay. Everybody knows how I feel about R.C. Sproul. I love him and I hate him. Because he's so wrong on several core doctrines, and yet he's, what's that? Was. Well, yeah, he was. Yeah, but that's right. But he still is because he's still being put out Uh, there. But I I love the guy. He is such a great mind in certain disciplines of scripture. And yet in others, replacement theology, I'd like to just grab him and just shake him. How could you believe that? How could you think that God would break his covenant with Israel? It's so clear. That the church, well, the church just assumed that covenant, you know, and they, they have to come in with unfounded conclusions in order to, to have that stand and to support that ideology. But it doesn't mean that he's a bad human being, and it certainly doesn't mean that he's not saved, which is one thing that I see way too much of is when people start questioning other people's salvation when they have no idea what that person has done between them and Christ. Everything after that, you know, it, it, it's all a learning process. Here's an example I will give you about R.C. Sproul, okay? He heard the gospel when, I think he said he was 19. He was a young guy. He was in a Presbyterian church, and he heard the gospel, and he said, I responded. The truth of God in Christ, I responded, right? And he says, now it's, I don't know, 50 years later or something, he's giving a, a talk, one of his morning talks, and he says, I completely believe different on almost every precept that I'd learned in those earlier years. Well, here's the question. Was he saved when he was 19 or was he saved now that he's got proper doctrine in all of these disciplines? The fact is he was saved when he believed the gospel message of Jesus Christ. That is when he was saved. Everything else after that is a learning process. And you're not getting unsaved every time you learn something new properly or you learn something wrong. It doesn't work that way. You are saved and then you either grow or you get off on tangents. Okay. But don't question people's salvations. If they say they have called on Jesus and they have done 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 10, they are Ephesians 1, okay? So leave it at that. Um, and if you're wrong, you haven't lost anything. You don't need to tear people apart over it, right? You don't need to do that. Anyway, 
Here, read the last sentence again, and we'll go on to the next one. Don't get swept up in the vain imaginings of others, but hold fast to what God has revealed. What more does God need to say? That's what you have to ask yourself. He's given us all of this, and we study it every Sunday, and we come up with all kinds of wonderful revelations and pictures of Christ doing analysis, and you say, oh, I didn't know that, and say, oh, I learned that from John Lang, right? But it's sufficient. What more does he have to say? Absolutely nothing. He doesn't have to say anything, and he's not saying anything else. He has given us his word. Okay, 2.13. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Again, Paul continues to build on his previous thoughts. These things, his words, these things refer to the things that have been freely given to us by God from the previous verse, okay? He's building on his thoughts. The Spirit was upon the apostles, including Paul, for the reception of the Word of God. In this, he shows that they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as they spoke out the message of Christ. No doubt about it. Those words, which were put to pen and compiled for us, became the Word of God, the Holy Bible. Everybody see that? There's a process of the Holy Bible being received by men of God and then being penned down okay we have in scripture people that are quoted not the words they say but this person spoke uh, a prophet of god they give his name uh, uriah was one of them i think uh, he's mentioned in the book of jeremiah if i'm right anyway you got certain people that are quoted as having prophesied and yet their words are not recorded in the bible that was for the edification of israel that was for the instruction of israel god spoke through those people truly but it wasn't something that was necessary for our doctrine. It wasn't necessary for our understanding of Christ. But it was necessary for Israel to get back onto the right track. There are certain prophets that are mentioned, but their prophetic office is mentioned and other things. But once again, their words are not compiled. God is wise enough to know which ones are going to be in the word and which ones aren't. And we can't go questioning. People will often say, what about the book of Jasher? That's referred to in the Bible, right? Because it is. And other books are mentioned in the Bible. The book of Enoch is mentioned in the book of Jude. It's actually not mentioned, but it's cited in the book of Jude. Okay? And people say, well, that means the Enoch must be an inspired book of God. And so somebody must have taken it out of the word of God. That is a illogical thought. That is a fallacy in thinking. Because Paul, as I've said before, cites who? Greek philosophers, right? He cites certain Greek philosophers, three of them, in fact, in three different areas, Acts 17 and in uh, Titus. Are the things that those philosophers wrote about inspired? No, only the words that Paul chose to select that God has used in his word. If somebody's getting hot or cold, tell mom and she can turn on the thing because I have no idea. I get really hot every Bible class, and so I have no idea what the temperature is like. Anyway, um, uh, so... Just because something is cited in Scripture does not mean that the source is inspired. It means that what is cited is inspired. Okay, so we have to be careful with that type of thinking because people do come to those conclusions. Well, the book of Jasher is missing, and so we're missing something from the Bible. The book of Enoch is quoted, and so it must be along in the Bible. And there are actually denominations that hold to the book of Enoch because of that. That is incorrect. The Bible is sealed. It's 66 books. It is here. The Book of Enoch, I can tell you, is not inspired. I've read it. I've read the whole thing. It's got some really great things in there. It's got some spooky things in there. It's a fun book to read. 
you know, the letter of Aristius also has got some great things to read. All of that uh, non-canonical literature is great reading if you ever want to take the time. The writings of Josephus, great stuff. As a matter of fact, the sermon I typed on Monday, I think I cite Josephus in that sermon, okay? And I say it's not the Bible, but I just want you to know what it, it was. It was Monday sermon typing. The um, uh, Moses is with Korah and Dathan and Abiram, and the ground swallows him up. Well, the Bible doesn't give any detail, but Josephus does. It's not inspired, but pretty cool. So I include it in the sermon, okay? Anyway, doesn't mean it's inspired just because somebody cites it. That's the point. Okay, we're going to go on. It is this cherished book, meaning the Holy Bible, that is, as Paul says, not in words which man's wisdom teaches. No other book has its source directly in God. No other book. Instead, they have their source in the created rather than the creator. Man's wisdom is involved. But those prophets and apostles whose work is included in the Bible spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's right. That's 2 Peter 1.21. I'm going to take you there very quickly. I'm going to take you back to 19. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Talking about God's revealed light. There it is right there. It shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. It's like a light shining, calling you until the light shines in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. It wasn't private. It was God directed. For prophecy, verse 21, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That is how inspiration works. A man writes something as he is inspired. And we'll go through this very quickly so you understand inspiration in a way that is at least you're able to grasp it. When you read Jeremiah, you know that it's Jeremiah. All of the books of Jeremiah are written by the same guy. You can just tell this is his style. When you read Isaiah, you know that Isaiah wrote it. And then you'll get Paul who writes several New Testament books and they all sound like Paul, right? And yet at the same time, when you read Paul, you know that the same person that inspired Paul inspired Jeremiah and Isaiah. You just know it because the message behind it is one. It is a unified message. And so you say, how can I reconcile that? And I've told you this before, but it's a good reminder, is that when you have a, a person that writes music, and we'll pick somebody that's famous like Bach, right? And it doesn't matter who plays Bach. It doesn't matter where you go. Somebody is playing Bach. The person that understands Bach, that has listened to Bach, will say, that's a tune by Bach. Even if they've never heard that song written by Bach before, they will say, I know that Bach wrote that, didn't he? Right? And they'll say, yeah, that was Bach. How did you know? I can just tell. All right? So you have the author is hidden there in the words. But at the same time, you have the London Symphony Orchestra plays Bach. And you say, that sounds like the London Symphony Orchestra. I know I didn't say symphony. I said symphony. But okay. And then you hear it by the, uh, does Los Angeles have an orchestra? Where, who has an orchestra over here? Boston. They have a, yeah, Boston Symphony Orchestra, okay? And you listen to it and you say, I know that's the Boston Symphony Orchestra because I know that that violin player over there. Very distinct. And so you say, I know that that's Bach, but I know that that's this person and not this person. And that's how inspiration works. God is working through people using their styles, their their intricate, uh, you know, their idiosyncrasies and all of those other things. And yet, at the same time, his message is coming through very clearly. This is the word of God. So inspiration is kind of like music. You listen to 
um, somebody playing a, a Van Halen song, you know, Eddie Van Halen played that, but at the same time, it's not Eddie Van Halen playing it. And so you say, that's somebody else, but it's still Eddie Van Halen's song. Or when Eddie plays somebody else's song, you say, I know that's Eddie Van Halen, but that's not his song. So it's the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's a symphony or if it's hard rock, you're going to get the same thing because it's their style. And yet it's somebody that wrote that music, their style. Okay, that'll help you out with inspiration. Okay, so 2 Peter 1.21, holy men of God carried along by the Holy Spirit. They're working together. As man's wisdom, because he didn't write it, it's God's words. It's just his style being put through. As man's wisdom is excluded, only the truth of God remains. It is true that the styles, oh, I'm probably going to do that. I, I did. I I should have read ahead. Anyway, we'll read it anyway. It is true that the styles of the individual writers of the Bible come through, but each word was selected by God, moving harmoniously with the writer so that his perfect intent is realized. When a musician plays from a sheet of music, his style may come through, and yet the musical notes were each selected by the composer. Okay, I'm not going to read the composer. I'm not going to read you about Eddie Van Halen again. It's just if you listen to rock music, there's no doubt who Eddie Van Halen is and what he played. There's just no doubt. That's why I use him all the time. In the Bible, man's wisdom is excluded, but the words of the divine author and the style of the human writer remains. Thus, the Bible can be and is the word of God. Finally, in Paul's words today, he says that this process is noted as comparing spiritual things with spiritual. Okay, This is an immensely complex phrase which is highly debated concerning, concerning its exact meaning. Many possibilities exist as to how Paul's words are rightly translated. I mean, the translation alone, much less the interpretation of the words, is very debated. Okay, One possibility which seems appropriate based on the next verse would be explaining spiritual things to spiritual persons. That's Adam Clark who gave that analysis. This will be continued, uh, evaluated in verse 14. Okay, so just think of that. When he says comparing spiritual to spiritual, Adam Clark says he is talking about people comparing spiritual things to spiritual persons. And we'll look at that when we get to the next verse. Life application. God's word is sealed. The prophets and apostles have received God's revelation, which has been recorded for us and which is our guide for life and conduct as Christians. Extra biblical revelation is not only unnecessary, it would be a diversion away from the very word which God has given us. Don't be swayed by those who claim prophecies or a word from the Lord. The Lord has given us his word. Did he somehow miss something? No. Okay. Now, having said that, this happens to me a lot. People will send me an email and say, well, I had a revelation from God, or I, I was brought to the Lord through a dream or a vision. And I get that a lot. Okay. And some people even deny that they ever heard about the Bible. They didn't even know who Jesus was. I just got a vision from Jesus. One, I don't believe that because I do not believe that's how God works. We live by faith and not by sight. If Jesus shows up in a vision and he says, I want you to believe in me, that's not faith. Okay. But having said that, I do think that people may be serious in what they're saying. They honestly believe what they're saying, but their minds have constructed a reality based on their circumstances. They may have you know, heard the message of Jesus and molded over in their mind and had a dream one day. And it was so real that it seems like God was speaking to them when they're young, they heard the message or people actually construct things that didn't happen. Okay. 
as if they did happen. And that happens to us all the time in our lives. We find out that something that we have believed for years is actually not correct. Has anybody had that happen where you thought you saw something and then years later you find out it wasn't true? That happened to me a couple times, especially when I was in grade school. I was like, I'm certain that happened. No, it didn't. And then somebody comes and verifies. No, that wasn't correct. So we construct things. I'm not saying that people are insane because they believe that they were called by a vision. But I just think they're wrong. If I'm wrong, I haven't lost anything. So that's where I stand on that. We live by faith and not by, not by sight. Okay, verse 214. 214 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see where Adam Clark from that verse already is saying spiritual things to spiritual persons? It's because he's talking about the natural and the spiritual man. That's why I like what Adam Clark said. All right, this is another highly abused verse within common Christian speech. It needs to be viewed from within the context given and with reasonable contemplation. Far too often, Christians will cite it as a demonstration of the impossibility of a non-believer being able to know, understand, or perceive anything found in the Bible. Have you heard that? I've heard that a million times. Well, you have to, uh, let me read it to you. Um, uh, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them. And so you say, you can't know what the Bible's speaking about because you haven't received Jesus Christ. You're the natural man. That is not what that's speaking about at all. Listen, people can pick up this word and they can understand a lot of it, all right? They can understand probably more. I know atheists that know and understand the Bible far better than almost all Christians on this planet. Why? Because they're atheists and they want to disprove the word. And so they read it, they understand it, they know what God is saying. They just don't believe that it's God that's saying it. And they will go into debates and they will debate Christians who are not prepared for that and they get torn apart. Because these atheists know the Bible very, very well. Okay? Trust me on this. Okay, so, far too often Christians will cite it as a demonstration of the impossibility of a non-believer being able to know, understand, or perceive anything found in the Bible. Likewise, they will cite it to demonstrate that they have access to all knowledge and are therefore authorities on the subject matter they desire to speak of. Go onto any Christian website, any Christian discussion board, even on Facebook, and you will see people citing this scripture saying, see, I have the Spirit of God, and I know what I'm talking about, and you obviously are not a Spirit-filled believer. They don't know the Bible this much, but they think that they do because they take this verse out of context. Both of these are immense misinterpretations of Paul's intent. He has been speaking of the contrast between human wisdom and the wisdom of God. I should put God on this side. Human wisdom and the wisdom of God, which is the work of God in Christ. He has demonstrated that his work, meaning the cross, the resurrection, and so on, is God's plan of salvation, something which is foolishness to those who reject the plan. As I said, an atheist knows that. They've read the Bible and they know what it says. They just reject it, okay? So you can't say to him, you don't know what you're talking about because you don't have the Spirit of God. He knows exactly what he's talking about. He just doesn't believe it, all right? Going on, it says, to support this, he begins with, but... This is given as a contrast of those things in the previous verse, which the Holy Spirit teaches, okay? The contrast is that the natural man, man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, Paul's words. The natural man is the Greek word psychikos de anthropos. The word psychikos is descriptive of the natural or lower aspect of humanity. It is earthly rather than heavenly. 
The word pneumatikos, on the other hand, is used to describe the spiritual aspect of man, the pneuma, the spirit, okay? A great comparison of these two words is found in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul describes the contrast between the earthly and the spiritual man. Adam is the earthly who he's speaking about. Christ is the spiritual, okay? In James' epistle, he uses the term to describe earthly wisdom. Let me take you there really quickly to read you that, just so we... James, let's go back right after Hebrews, Charlie. James, anybody tell me what book of the Bible James is? Third, 22nd, 57th, anybody? 59th book of the Bible. Okay, James 3 verse 15 says, um, This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. So that's what he's using the same type of terminology in James 3 15. Jude, Jude speaks in similar terms as well. Understanding that this is a state of the person, it should be noted that there are many Christians who act anything but spiritual. So that can apply to Christians as well as non-Christians. It's a person living in the carnal world. And Paul speaks about that in detail here and elsewhere. Okay, so they have accepted Christ, but they aren't focused on him as Lord through much of their walk. I've got some in my family that know the Lord very well. They've accepted Christ and they are not walking with the Lord. They're not going to Bible studies. They don't attend church. Or if they do attend church, they sure don't tell dad, right? Okay. Uh, if you, I didn't give anything away there, did I? Anyway, therefore, okay, this is exactly what James is talking about in his letter. Therefore, Paul's words here cannot be taken as an example that Christians suddenly become the possessors of all spiritual knowledge. Nor can it be used to say that non-believers have no ability to discern the contents of the Bible. Instead, and what should be perfectly clear from the context, is that Paul is speaking of the very same matter that he has been speaking of throughout the entire chapter and even in the previous chapter. It is that the wisdom of God is displayed in the work of Jesus Christ. This is God's special revelation concerning the redemptive process. Those who believe that one can answer all things through natural revelation. Remember we talked about that, the scientists and the Greeks, etc. What can be perceived through creation. They think that they can answer all of the things of God through the creation. Logic, philosophy, they will inevitably reject the work of Jesus Christ. To them, it is foolishness that God would save people in such a way as this. We talked about that in last week's uh, talk. This is what Paul is referring to. Such things, as Paul says, are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Only through the spiritual knowledge imparted to us by God can we know the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit spoke through the prophets and apostles, testifying to the work of Jesus Christ. They, in turn, gave us the Bible to read, to accept, and to believe. The problem with misunderstanding this verse, as many people do, is that they suddenly act upon it as if they have all spiritual insight that they need and is available to them by daily injections of Holy Spirit power. There are churches filled with people like that. They don't know at all what the Bible says. They have no idea. You ask them about this verse or about that book of the, they have no idea, but they are spiritually injected by the Holy Spirit every single day because they go out and they do whatever they do and say the things they say. And that's all they need, and they look down on everybody else. Like the people that speak in tongues is required to get into that particular college. They look down on everybody else because they have the Holy Spirit and you don't. And that is not at all what Paul is speaking of. Not this much. The Bible, however, is a big, 
complicated and often hard to grasp book. It takes immense study. It takes contemplation, meditation, and care to fully grasp. And in fact, no one can truly plumb its depth, plumb its depths. And when I say meditation, I'm not trying to get people off onto Zen Buddha meditation. That's not what I'm talking about. It says in the Psalms, I meditate on your word, O God. When I have a problem with the sermon, like I did with chapter 13 of the book of Numbers, it was one of the most complicated sermons that I have had to try to figure out what is the Lord picturing here for us in Christ. Okay, it has been probably since Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, was probably the last time I had such a difficult sermon. And I actually emailed the people and I said, I'd like you to pray because I am not understanding. In this sermon, this first one, I'm going to admit this in the introduction to the sermon on Sunday. I had no idea what was being said. Zero. And in the second sermon of the uh, chapter, there's all kinds of information I had to go through. Can I figure out the picture that God is trying to give us in Christ? Because everything has been following along very logically. Christ died. You know, he had his ministry. He died. And we're going through these things. And Numbers is following this plan of redemption. Am I going to be able to figure this out? And when I was lying in bed at night, I was not sleeping. For two weeks, I wasn't sleeping at all. I was meditating on the word of God. I was lying there and thinking, oh, God. You know, I went through this with the Jacob sermons in Genesis as well. Very complicated, but what is it showing? It's showing the whole dispensational model. If you follow Jacob's life from when he leaves Bethel and goes up to Padam Aram and eventually leaves there and he comes down and he uh, goes to, um, uh, uh, where was it, um, uh, the mountain where they did the covenant and then he goes into Sukkot, it, it follows the dispensations of time. Well, that took a lot of thinking. What is going on there? He'd go, oh, she's not here. She knew I'd be sitting at the table and she'd have this beautiful meal in front of me and I wouldn't be eating. I'd just be sitting there with my head on the table for a week. And then all of a sudden I'd lift up my head and I'd start eating. And she said, you got it, didn't you? Right? It, it takes hard thinking. It takes hard study to know this word. And that's why Bible studies, you go home and I hope your head hurts. That means that you're listening and you're trying to process what's being said. If not, if you just go home and say, that was a good class. Did you learn anything? Did you think about it? Are you going to go home and contemplate what God has said? That is where the rewards were. So when I say meditate, I'm not talking about Zen Buddhist meditation. I'm talking about thinking on the word of God, pondering it. Lord, what are you trying to show us? I'm going to tell you something. There's a guy, Chris. I can't, I, I don't think I can give out his information other than to say he's a Navy SEAL. Okay. I don't want to give any more information about him without his permission, but he attends this church. Okay. And he said something to me one time. I've been carrying this with me, waiting for the time to use it, and I haven't had it, so I'm going to give it to you. We've got a couple minutes, and we'll finish this, and we'll be done on time. He's thinking on the Word of God, and he's thinking about the name of the Lord. yud Hey vav Hey. yud is the first letter. Hey is the second. Vav and Hey. We don't know how that's pronounced, but I always say Jehovah, okay? It's not Jehovah because there's no J in the Hebrew, all right? The J is the Germanic brought into our language, okay? It goes from the Germanic to the English where they actually pronounce the J. The Germans don't. They pronounce it as a Y. But okay, so you've got Yehovah or some people say Yahweh. Now, he's thinking on this name. And it came to him. Yud. Every letter in the Hebrew has a meaning. Yud means hand. Okay? Hey is a breath. or But it also means to behold. Okay? So hand, behold. Vav is a tenpeg. It's, it's a peg, okay? Vav. And then hey again, behold. And guess what? What did Jesus say to Thomas? 
he said, look at my hands. Behold, right? Yud, hand, behold, vav, peg. Look at, put your finger into the holes and behold. So right there, he is saying, I am Yehovah by making that demonstration to Thomas. And what did Thomas say? My Lord and my God, Yehovah, it would be uh, Adonai, meaning Yehovah, but not saying his name. It's saying, you are my Lord, Adonai Elohi, because he would have spoken Aramaic. If he spoke Hebrew, it would have been Eli, but he said, my Lord and my God, Adonai Elohi. It's amazing. That name has been there all this time, and he sent me that, and I've just been waiting to use it. I haven't found any reason to put it in the sermon yet, but if he's listening, thank you, Chris. It's marvelous, marvelous that he is proving who he is by showing Thomas, and he's saying, put your finger in here. Amazing. Anyway, um, here we go. Uh, but it's hard work. It's hard work figuring those things out. That doesn't just come. That comes by thinking on the name of God, thinking on the meaning of the letters, thinking on what is being displayed in what's going on. And all of a sudden, it makes sense right at the end of the book of John. You've got the entire Bible leading up there, and he comes up and he says to this disbelieving person, look, ah, okay, study is hard work, and it involves expanding one's mind, even to exhaustion. It is time-consuming, time-consuming. You want to know what happened this past week? Hedico was so distressed for me, and I was even more distressed. Type my daily commentaries. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was Hebrews 10.1. I typed it. It takes me sometimes a little quicker, but usually about an hour in the morning. I type one of these commentaries, okay? And then I put it aside for 10 days, and then I read it again, and I move it into another folder because every day... It kind of goes like this. Here's today's, and then I take one from tomorrow, and I put it in today's because that's no longer. I've got that somewhere else. And then I take the one that's 10 days away, and I look at that, and I say, this is the day after that. So if this is Tuesday the 7th, I make this Wednesday the 8th. Well, I think it was Hebrews 10.1, which is a couple days ago. I typed it. I typed over the previous days. I didn't save it in the right folder and I lost everything I had done the day before in an hour of work. And so now I've got two hours of work to do today. I've got to retype what I typed yesterday. I've got to type one for today. And that was Sunday, whenever it was Sunday. So I didn't for the first time in 11 years, 10 years, whatever, I didn't practice a sermon Sunday morning. It was probably evident. I was talking all over myself, but that's the first time I didn't practice on a Sunday morning. I practice it eight times in a row, every single day, and then Sunday's the last time, and then I come in here and I give it, right? I was so distressed last Sunday because of that. It's hard work. And then you make a mistake like that, it's even harder. But here's what I said, and Brian comforted me. He said exactly what I had already said to myself early in the morning. Lord, there was a reason why I wasn't to keep that commentary. There was something wrong. He didn't want it in there do it again. I'm certain of that. And Brian said exactly the same thing. He's such a cheerful guy. Anyway, studies hard work. It involves expanding one's mind. We've got three minutes, even to exhaustion. It is time consuming. It requires much perseverance and dedication. These things are not now, nor have they ever been very popular. I'm talking about using your brain. It's not something that people do. And on the left in this nation, they don't use it at all anymore. But that's a side issue. Interestingly, many non-Christians, Jews, agnostics, and even professing atheists, and here's what I said earlier, here it is, they know the Bible far better than most Christians. They discern many truths from it, and they use it as a valuable source of knowledge and history. Because of this, it is obvious that Paul is not speaking on the terms of general knowledge and ability 
to perceive Scripture. He is speaking on the truth of what Scripture ultimately proclaims, which is Jesus Christ crucified. Life application, and we are done right on time. Care needs to be taken to always keep verses in their proper context, sometimes a whole chapter or even more. It's needed to properly discern the intent of just one verse, running ahead with a verse like 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14, without keeping it in its intended context can only lead to a pretext. It is harmful to sound interpretation, and it will inevitably lead to know-it-alls who actually know very little. Be patient, be studious, and be determined in your pursuit of Bible knowledge and of Bible understanding. I'm very proud of the people that attend this church that are willing to put up with long, lengthy, because I've been in Bible studies where they'll go through an entire passage in a single day and you haven't learned anything. They just, how does that make you feel? And et cetera. And there are people online and they send me questions about what did I say? That never bothers me. That never bothers me because they are wanting to know the word of God. And you know, sometimes you tell somebody something and they'll come back and you'll go three or four times. The guy that handles the website, I give his name and that's it. Mike, I can't give any more about him. He's, he's camera shy, we'll say, but he challenges me on everything. And there are times where I get really annoyed because I'm busy and I've got a lot to do, but I always appreciate it. Even if I'm annoyed, I always appreciate it because people are wanting to know the word of God. And if you're here to study, that is worth all of the riches in the world because they're all going to perish, but what you have learned and applied in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that is what is of the highest value of all. We've got 30 seconds. Would you close us in prayer, Burke? Lord, we thank you for your teachings of Charlie and then for us to really check it out for the Berean Christian. We just thank you that you love us enough that you sent your word to us mm. and then made it available to everybody. Thank you for loving us. Help us to walk with you in obedience and to witness your grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, let me back this up so we can say goodbye to these folks. I do.